0: Contact. Making contact. Making, making. making contact. Before we get started, a quick warning that in this episode, we'll be hearing about the murder and assault of women and girls. If you're not in a space to hear this right now, this might be the time to hit pause and check out another one of our episodes.
1: Okay. Raise your hand in the Bible huh? and raise your right hand and then repeat after me.
2: Hi, Deborah Holland. Hi, Deborah Holland. Do solemnly swear. Do solemnly swear. That I will...
0: In March of 2021, Deb Holland, a tribal citizen of the Laguna Pueblo, became the first Native American ever to occupy a U.S. cabinet position. Shortly after her confirmation, Interior Secretary Holland created a new unit to investigate cases involving missing and murdered American Indians and Alaska Natives, and to prioritize those cases. In a press statement, Holland said that violence against Indigenous peoples is a crisis that has been underfunded for decades. Far too often, murders and missing person cases in Indian country go unsolved and unaddressed, leaving families and communities devastated. Earlier this year, the U.S. House of Representatives voted to reauthorize the Violence Against Women Act, or VAWA. This latest version would bring a number of changes and expansions to the law. For one, it would allow tribal courts to prosecute non-native people for violent crimes against women. But while VAWA awaits action in the Senate, missing and murdered indigenous women and girls continue to face an unequal system of justice. Although the new missing and murdered unit under the Department of Interior aims to provide new resources for solving cases, many tribal courts have been restricted from fully prosecuting sexual assault and domestic violence crimes committed by non-native people. And neighboring courts and law enforcement frequently prioritize other cases. Attorney Mary Catherine Nagel is a partner at Pipestem Law, a firm specializing in tribal sovereignty of Native nations and
1: peoples. Oftentimes when, when the state and feds don't investigate, it's because they don't care. It's not a priority for them if a Native woman is missing or murdered, right? And they could investigate these crimes and ultimately prosecute them or hand it over to the tribe or to the state or whatever sovereign has jurisdiction. Um, but they're not doing that. And and that is a political choice based on a prejudice that tells most Americans in this country that the lives of native women are not to be valued. Um, and that's been a problem since 1492. And unfortunately VAWA doesn't address that. What VAWA does address is the 1978 Supreme Court case in Oliphant, which basically said, tribes, you don't get to exercise that jurisdiction anymore. It's being taken away. And so by restoring it, you're restoring the inherent right of of a woman's government to protect her in her own home, which is great, but that's not going to do anything if we want federal and state allies to do their jobs.
0: The Violence Against Women Act has been reauthorized several times, most recently in 2013 this latest version of VAWA, H.R. 1620, would expand the types of crimes that tribal courts could prosecute even more. Mary Catherine Nagel.
1: So, for instance, 2013 only restored tribal criminal jurisdiction for three crimes, dating violence, violation of protection orders, and domestic violence. And what H.R. 1620 would do if passed into law would would sort of expand that restoration to include other non-Indian perpetrated crimes on tribal lands, including stranger sexual assault, uh, child abuse, elder abuse, human trafficking, um, obstruction of justice, and assault on tribal law enforcement. There's also inclusion of an Alaska pilot project. So unfortunately VAWA 2013 cut out the vast majority of tribes in Alaska. And so there's like 228 tribes in Alaska that since fall of 2013 have not been able to exercise this jurisdiction to protect their women uh, or their children or anyone who's in a domestic violence situation uh, with a non-Indian. And that's been very unfortunate. And the rates of violence are very high in Alaska. And so H.R. 1620 also seeks to implement an Alaska pilot project.
0: You're listening to The Many Faces of Justice, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls of North America, on Making Contact. We'll hear excerpts from Justice for Indigenous Women and Girls, part of a speaker series hosted by Voice of Witness and Haymarket Books. The conversation is centered on the book, How We Go Home, Voices from Indigenous North America. We now turn it over to Sarah Sinclair, editor of How We Go Home.
3: Sarah Sinclair. I'm an oral historian and educator of Cree Ojibwe and German-Jewish descent. I want to take a moment to acknowledge that if we were gathering physically in one place today, we would recognize and thank those whose land we had gathered upon. Since we are all distanced, each of our speakers will share the land that we are calling from today. My home in Brooklyn is located on the traditional ancestral lands of the Lenape, It resides on land that was cared for and called home by the Lenape people and other native peoples from time immemorial. Over to you, Vicky.
2: Thanks for having me. And I just wanna say how much of an an honor and humbling experience it is to be uh, sharing a space with some incredible, amazing leaders, teachers, and healers. And I do want to uh, acknowledge that I'm on the uh, traditional and unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Abenaki people.
4: And Paula? I'm Paula Julian, Senior Policy Specialist with the National Indigenous Women's Resource Center. I'm Filipina, and for the last 14 years, I work from home on the La Jolla Indian Reservation in San Diego County at the land of the people of the Payomkawichem, or people of the West. And Gladys.
5: Gladys Raddick, uh, I'm on the uh, original territory, the Simshian.
3: To ground our conversation and the narratives around this issue, I'd like to share a few key numbers for context. In the U.S., more than four in five Indigenous women have experienced violence, and more than one in two have experienced sexual violence. In Canada, Indigenous women are six times more likely to be murdered than non-Indigenous women and girls. We're honored to have Gladys Radick here today, one of the narrators from How We Go Home, In the book, Gladys bravely shares her life story of growing up in Canada's foster care system, surviving violence herself, and becoming a tireless grassroots advocate for missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls following the disappearance of her own niece, Tamara Lynn Chipman in 2005. Gladys co-founded Walk for Justice, an organization created to fight for the families of Indigenous women who went missing or were found murdered across Canada. With Walk for Justice, Gladys has crossed the country seven times and she has spoken to thousands of families whose lives have been, have been impacted by violence perpetrated against Native women and girls. And Gladys, I'm going to start by asking you if you would share a little bit about your own life experience and your journey to becoming an advocate.
5: Yeah, it actually began when, uh, when my niece Tamara did go missing. Previous to her going missing, I was up in uh, her home community of Terrace, which is where I am now, but I lived here, and I was, at that time, she was 18 years old, and she came to support me because I moved back up to Terrace to address a historical sexual abuse case, and I decided that I was going to charge one of my perpetrators, and when I moved up here for that year, Tamara spent a lot of time with me. She came over, she knew the court hearings were happening, and and she came over just to support me, just to be with her auntie. And she came over, she spent a lot of time with me and with her dog, Niner, and, you know, he was a Rottweiler, but they spent a lot of time with, with me and my three cats at that time and my kids. And uh, so she was there for my moral support through all of this. And I told her that I was only going to be in Terrace for a year. And then I had to move back down to Vancouver because I had a significant other that was living in Vancouver. And I promised him that I would be back within a year after I dealt with these charges. So that's where Tamara and I spent a lot of time together. And uh after I left, you know, I, I kept in touch with her and also, you know, with my own family, you know. And in December 2005, that's when my sister phoned me and told me that, that tomorrow was going to be on the news. And I thought, what for? And they told me that she had disappeared. Well, you may as well have lit a candle under my butt because I was very upset about that. And uh, my cousin was going to do this walk. And then I heard about a symposium that they were having in Prince George. And so we ended up walking from there, from Prince Rupert, into the symposium in Prince George, March 2006. The most common message that I was hearing, because family members knew that we were walking and they were coming to us and sharing their stories about their loved ones that had gone missing, which is... You know, so I ended up having to build a database because all these families are coming to me with pictures, and this is my loved one. This is what happened. This is what happened. And you know, I'm I'm sitting there and I'm listening to all these families, and the most sought thing that they kept saying was, "We need an inquiry. We need to find out what's going on with our women." That's the first time that I also heard the term highway of tears, and I found out where that came from and realized that, yeah, this is the highway of tears. Because there was so many of us family members that had tears for decades missing their loved ones. I started hearing stories from the 50s about young girls that had gone missing They left the reserve. They go to Vancouver, go to Prince George, get away to escape violence, to escape poverty. And the stories got to me. So finally in December 2007, you know, I was really angry when I went to my brother's at Christmas time that year in Barrier. And that's when I came up with the idea. I used my cousin's walk. And I I remembered how she did it, and we did it in 10-kilometer increments. And so I just kind of took that, and I thought, we can do that. We can walk across the country. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, you know what? These families have been silenced for so many years. Somebody's got to do something. And when Bernie said to me, let's not talk about it. Let's do it. Mm -hmm. I said, okay, let's do it.
3: Can you tell us about what the walks have been like?
5: I tell you, it wasn't easy. Uh, We totally relied on donations and volunteer. Uh, The majority of the, the walkers were family members who had lost loved ones. Some were fresh, some of them were really old cases. But somewhere, all of us were affected by the loss of somebody that we loved, whether it be male or female. We were all affected by the same thing. And we all recognized the fact that um, our human rights were actually being violated. On our first walk, that's the one thing that we did was we took the United Declaration for Human Rights. All the walkers studied it and we picked it apart and we picked it apart. And during that walk, we would talk about it every night. And we, I would ask the walkers, so what did you notice today in that? And we ended up picking out of the first, out of the Universal Declaration, 17 violations pertaining to our women out of the 30 amendments. It's our families' voices that needed to be heard, and our families kept on coming out. Basically, I would say that Walk for Justice is responsible for uniting those families and bringing their voices out so they weren't silenced anymore. We were sitting behind a wall of silence before we walked. And all these families were in their own little communities and they were suffering in silence because they thought nobody cared. When we started walking, we started connecting the families together, okay, and you know, and it just kept on going and now we've got a huge family representation right across the nation and each one of those family members has their own voices you know when we first did the first walk walk for justice 2008 the first thing that bernie told me is okay gladys you have to write a mission statement (laughs) oh no i'm lousy at that but what i was writing in that mission statement was the voices of the families and what they were telling me And more often than not, the word genocide came out. So I'm sitting there and I I put genocide in the very first mission statement because that's what it was and that's what it still remains today. When you think about the average First Nations woman will have five children in a lifetime. So say per se Canada is missing 5000 women. So that means we are missing out on 25,000 children for our future generations, pointing directly to genocide.
3: We are also excited to have Dr. Vicky Chartrand with us. Vicky is an associate professor in the sociology department at Bishops University in Quebec and an adjunct professor at the University of Ottawa in the criminology department. She is an advocate for and with women and children Indigenous communities and people in prison. Uh, Vicky, can you tell us what are you and Gladys working on together?
2: One of the big things that we just recently finished working on was a resource collection of over 500 grassroots initiatives, Indigenous grassroots initiative, in support of the missing and murdered Indigenous women. This particular idea, why we started um, collating this, this information is that we were on a cross country road trip where we traveled in camp, driving over 10,000 kilometers over the course of 17 days. Something that struck me on this trip that we were on is that Gladys actually uh, drives a car called she calls it her war pony. You may have pictures, I don't know, but um, she actually pastes pictures of missing women on her on the on the car to raise awareness and to help try to find these women. And as we'd go from town to town, for the most part, people would just sort of look on in, in, a, real, in a somewhat interested way. But as we'd get into the Indigenous communities or reserves, um, and when we would stop, you know, the people would come around, they'd look at the car, they'd meet, go up to Gladys, introduce themselves, shake her hand for all the work she was doing. They would talk about some of their own experiences. Some of them might even known a woman on, on the actual vehicle. They would also offer us food, they'd offer gas, they offer us lodging. And to me, that really exemplified. I mean, it really shows that constellation of support that's so desperately lacking in our current criminal justice system. The idea, I think this idea really it really struck me then, it was that we needed to look at this database or this resource collection. It doesn't just highlight the different things that Indigenous communities are doing. It highlights the tremendous resource and strength that already exists in Indigenous communities. Mm-hmm. And it also highlights the different areas that ju- the things that justice is and the things that justice needs well beyond what a criminal justice system can actually provide.
3: I'd love to hear more about what you learned about that, about what justice is and what it needs.
2: Justice is and needs many things, more than what, a, again, what a, a criminal justice can provide. And Justice needs to cultivate people and carry people through particularly difficult and challenging times as Gladys knows through through her walks. But one of these i wanted to talk about was an initiative called uh, in manitoba in winnipeg manitoba called drag the red and here it's where volunteers came together uh, to literally search the red river of winnipeg after a young indigenous woman's body was found in the river and the initiative took root when the police had refused to search stating it would be ineffective and dangerous and of course if your function is just to simply solve cases then it would be ineffective But so as Bernadette Smith tells us, she says that, um, you know, there's a real disconnect between the support that is needed by the families for the murders and disappearances and with what is the system's able or even willing to offer. So to drag the red, the family members, they got together, they pooled their resources, they provided boats, financial support, you know, there was training for mapping and navigating the river. They learned how to identify bones and provide uh, research and uh, search and rescue training. Like, it was a real combined effort, and the families also developed a missing persons uh, toolkit to help families navigate the media, build an investigation, log communications, interface with police, and various ways to carry out searches. So it's building up community and people through constellations of support. You know, and really, as Gladys has said before, it's community supporting community, and how is a criminal justice system able to respond in that way?
3: I've looked at the resource and it's amazing to see all the work that different individuals and communities are doing. Have there been any surprises along the way? Any like great aha moments for you in putting all this together?
2: I was astounded by the magnitude of work that was being carried out. So when you look at it, because you hear a lot about it, but when you put it together collectively, it's like, wow, It's this is a critical mass of organizing that we often don't hear about. And we often... You know, in particularly the media and public discourse, we hear Indigenous communities talked about within a framework of damage, mm-hmm. and and I think that really challenges that stereotype or that myth that communities are organizing and working together on based on their own resources and in light of histories of colonial uh, or in current colonial traumas and violences.
3: We also have Paula Julian with us today. Paula is the Senior Policy Specialist for the National Indigenous Women's Resource Center. She works on policy analysis and development, technical assistance and training, and partnerships to strengthen laws, policies, and responses addressing violence against American Indian, Alaska Native, and Native Hawaiian women. Um, I was hoping that we can hear a little bit about your current work at the National Indigenous Women's Resource Center. And to start, maybe you can speak a little bit about how the impact of colonization and genocide connects to this issue of
4: violence against Indigenous women and girls. It is families and local tribal governments that are always the first and often only responders to violence against Native women. Too often, um, because of a failed government response to provide for tribal resources. Uh, We don't have um, law enforcement, for example, in many tribal communities. Most important from this point forward is really centering those indigenous protections um, that look at reforming non-native responses to the violence and really making sure that the needs of the survivors and the families are front and center. Um, I think that inquiry that Canada uh, finally completed, that didn't happen out of the goodness of the government's heart. That happened because the families said, we need to know what is happening to our girls, our women. Um, And in the United States, it is the same. And because of those outcries, we have seen a steady change in what we call the indigenization of U.S. laws, uh, particularly from 2005 to today. Um, you can see it, for example, in the Violence Against Women Act, um, where we created in 2005, there was a tribal title that was developed out of the tribal voices that said, Something needs to change, the laws have to protect our women. We are citizens of this country just like everybody else. Um, And so we have seen the gradual strengthening of protections in the Violence Against Women Act as one uh, concrete example.
0: listening to The Many Faces of Justice, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls of North America on Making Contact. The panel of women you just heard were Gladys Radick, Dr. Vicky Chartrand, Paula Julian, and editor of How We Go Home, Sarah Sinclair. Coming up, we'll hear from the founder of the Sovereign Bodies Institute, the home of the only grassroots database that tracks missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls across borders. When it comes to responding to reports of missing and murdered Indigenous people, and then tracking those cases, to simply say that there are discrepancies in data gathering doesn't begin to describe the problem. A report by the Urban Indian Health Institute said the U.S. Department of Justice, in one year, logged just 116 out of well over 5,000 reports of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. Anita Lucchese is the founder and executive director of a nonprofit organization that works to correct the record. The Sovereign Bodies Institute conducts research and provides services to survivors and their families. Lucchese explains why she started the project.
6: I don't want to act like there was some big intentional moment, like there was no morning where I woke up and was like, I'm going to start a database today. And I was in grad school, but I didn't have any experience in data science at that time. So it had very humble beginnings. Really, I needed a good working number of cases for a different project that I was working on that MMIW was one of many issues in that project. And I was kind of naive in thinking, well, you know, there's all these news articles out there. What if I just put them all in a list and I could come up with a number that way? And now six years later, it's become my life's work. So it was something that I kind of, happened upon and got really called to do as a survivor who almost was a missing or murdered woman. And as somebody who, you know, started working more with the families and more with grassroots advocates and just felt like this was something I was supposed to do. Um, I know that there's others who have started similar projects and some organizations have maintained that data and some haven't. We're the only ones that work internationally across colonial borders And as far as I know, we're the longest running source. And I think part of that has to do with the fact that gathering this data is, it takes a really big emotional toll. It's not for everybody. But for me, it's been really healing, not necessarily to see, you know, all this violence continue, but to be able to make sure that all of these women's stories uh, have a home and have meaning and are part of the fight to make sure it doesn't happen to other women. And in 2019, we officially launched um, SBI as a nonprofit and as the home for the database. And so that's still part of what we do. I look at it as kind of the bedrock foundation that inspires all of our other projects that we take on. And that database includes all Indigenous peoples, regardless of um, gender or which people they come from or which nationality they may have citizenship in, all indigenous peoples throughout the Americas. Um, And we actually very recently just hired a new staff member who's um, indigenous to the Philippines, who's um, helping us to be more inclusive of our relatives from the Pacific as well.
0: Since the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, Anita Lucchese says her organization has seen more clients seeking services, and they're doing so more frequently.
6: And some of that has to do with an increase in violence. Because of the pandemic, I know there's kind of a national dialogue on how quarantining has increased rates of domestic violence. Part of it is that kids who are in the system in many places, if they, for example, if they run away from a group home and then they decide they want to get off the streets and come back, they have to quarantine. And sometimes the only place for them to quarantine is in jail. And those kids are just not going to do that. And so they end up staying on the streets and are much more likely to experience violence that way. And even the families and the survivors who experienced violence before the pandemic started, quarantining has really triggered a lot of PTSD and trauma for some survivors, and that's resulted in a need for more therapy. Um, And then the economic precarity that the pandemic has created has really put a lot of families at, at a disadvantage.
0: The Sovereign Bodies Institute has been working to get reliable data about problems like domestic violence or DV.
6: We are actually in the process of working on a project trying to assess rates of missing and murdered Indigenous women and domestic violence fatalities, specifically in California as kind of a case study. Um, And that's a partnership with the California Rural Indian Health Board. Part of what we were trying to do was to see like, Can we measure how much the violence has increased during this pandemic? And the sad reality is that we really can't because the data exists in so many different pockets and none of them are accessible from one place to another or report back to a central location. So it makes it really hard to try to make sense of how bad things are getting. And to be clear, we filed Freedom of Information Act requests with every county clerk in the entire state and every county sheriff, and most major law enforcement agencies, and all of them either ignored us or said no.
0: Anita Lucchese is the founder and executive director of the Sovereign Bodies Institute. Thanks to Haymarket Books for allowing us to broadcast excerpts from their speaker series on justice for Indigenous women and girls. The Making Contact team is Sonia Green, Anita Johnson, Salima Hamarani, Sabine Blazon, and I'm Monica Lopez. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.